In this segment, we'll experiment with the boundaries of storytelling, featuring some of our friends, mentors, and advisors. We'll share perspectives and reframe the narratives that fall on a spectrum. We'll have unfiltered conversations around life, business, and everything in between. Between the vantage point of a deep thinker and an atomic player. Between an objective mind and a subjective heart. Between the truth teller and the truth seeker. Between two sides of the coin. Hello, everyone. Today, we have Thomas Smail, who founded FE International in 2010, which is a top-ranked global M&A advisory firm for SaaS, e-commerce, and content businesses. Thomas originally founded it way back with the aim of helping entrepreneurs running self-funded and profitable businesses exit. Since then, he has built FE into the industry-leading M&A advisor for $1-$100 million technology businesses. With experience dating back to the early 2000s, Smail offers invaluable technical diligence and negotiation advice to early stage and seasoned businesses owners alike, which has resulted in over 1,000 successful exits. Hi, Thomas. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. So just to kick start off, right, uh, would love to know a little bit about your background before starting FE International as well. And uh, how has your journey been for the last more than 15 years? Yeah, so as you mentioned, I founded FE in 2010. Um, Prior to founding FE, I was at college or, or, or university studying a business degree. I, back in probably 2008, I started, I started out in the industry buying and selling domains, quickly figured out that I didn't really understand domains because in my mind, a business makes much more sense because business makes money. Therefore, I understand why someone would want to buy a business and everything related to that, both with the domain name, it's just a name. It's, you don't necessarily have any value there. It's difficult to, to value. At the time, there wasn't really anywhere. Something like FE did not exist. There were no real brokers or M&A firms or marketplaces that were legitimate for selling uh, any sort of web businesses. So we were in the very early days of the industry. Nowadays, there's like lots of different options you can go for. But back then, it was basically just us, eBay, forums, most people don't even use forums these days or even know they exist. So started out offering a service and we were doing much smaller deals at the time. We we're doing 20,000, $15,000, $50,000 deals. Um, but back then when the industry was new, no one even really knew that you could sell a, an online business. So the FE grew as the industry grew. And I guess more and more awareness occurred as I guess we closed more deals. People started to talk about it. There's a lot of word mouth. Um, so that's really how we, I guess, got started and started to grow. Awesome. So, so when you talk about uh, negotiating deals and closing deals, are you in the brokerage space or are you in like scouting for these deals and then cracking the cap tables and the negotiation tape, uh, you know, discussions as well, and then formalizing the deals? How are the motions like? Yes, yeah, so we would describe ourselves as a, mergers and acquisitions company, um, but it's very similar. I mean, you could also describe it as a business broker. Effectively, the two services are the same. I think you just use the term M&A for big deals, business brokering for smaller deals. Um, but the process we go through is we look for founders or company owners who are looking to sell their business or at least considering it. We offer a free valuation to them, which is the very first part of the process. No obligation, completely free. Um, we have an entire valuation team internally 
we have a proprietary valuation model we've built out, which from the over a thousand deals we've closed, we track all of the different data points from every single deal. Um, so when we close the deal, we track all of that data. Um, and it means over time, our valuations become more and more accurate because we've closed more deals. We know that close to thousand, it's going to be more, that data is going to be more useful than when we'd only done a hundred deals. So start with the valuation, which is entirely data driven. It's not speculative. It's not based on what someone's read in a press release or what someone said their friends sold their business for purely data driven based on what we've seen. And because we, we specialize, we will only sell businesses that we understand and are very specific to our industry. So we're never valuing a business that we do not understand. We might not have sold the exact business model before, but chances are with a thousand deals, we sold something very close. So that's always been our approach there. And then if uh, a founder or a company chooses to hire us, um, they engage us to run the entire M&A process from uh, initial audit. So it's a lot of accounting work to make sure the financials are accurate all the way through the process to negotiating and, and closing the deal. So we're very much full service. We don't just do one part of the process. You can only hire us to do everything. Awesome. So I think uh, of the various business models and various industries that you have the expertise in, I'm pretty sure that you are also focusing on SaaS companies. And uh, in this coming years, at least the trend is that a lot of micro SaaS companies are getting traded or getting sold out. So what are your uh, thoughts or your forecasts for the future trends in this particular space, especially in the SaaS ecosystem? Yes, as you mentioned, SaaS is probably what we're best known for. I guess it depends, depends where you look. I mean, if I was on an e-commerce podcast, people would say e-commerce. If it was a content podcast, you'd say content. But generally, we work on SaaS, e-commerce, content-based businesses. And then there's other business models which will overlap. So it's not uncommon for businesses to have multiple business models. Yeah, within the SaaS space particularly, I'd say in, in the last five years, that space has really grown, particularly the the trends around self-funding and bootstrapping. If you go back 10 years, when I started FE, we didn't do any SaaS deals for years. SaaS wasn't really a thing in, in 2010. Like it, companies like Salesforce existed, but people building the small SaaS businesses they are now and building them up and selling them wasn't really anywhere near as much of a trend as it is now. Um, but we were definitely one of the first, if not the first to start selling SaaS companies probably a couple of years into FE. So between 2010 and 2012, we probably didn't do much SaaS. 2012 onwards, we would have done. But I think it's it's much easier today to launch a SaaS business than it was back then. So I think companies like Stripe, for example, any new founders starting today with a SaaS company would almost definitely sign up and use Stripe. Stripe was founded in 2010. So if you had a SaaS business in 2010, you couldn't use Stripe, you're using something like authorized.net and for anyone that's ever used authorized.net you'll know that it's a terrible product in comparison to stripe so it's definitely much easier today there are many more we sell a lot of businesses for example that are shopify apps so almost everyone knows what shopify is e-commerce platform or platform for building an e-commerce business they have an entire app store where you can build app or multiple apps to kind of service all of the like millions of customers on Shopify. I guess it's never been easier to launch an app. Like payment processing is easy, servers are cheap and easy, loads of different domains you can register. 
tons of courses out there. There's podcasts like this you can listen to. You can you can learn a lot more. So the industry is only continuing to grow. But I think we're still very very early. So for example, where where I I live, I live just outside San Francisco. So most people would assume that every business you deal with, everything is like a hundred percent driven by software. But where I live, which is about 40 minutes outside of the city, all of the services I, I personally use in my life, like uh, yard service, cleaning service, painting, so all of these services, none of them use any software. They still use checks. They still uh, like barely even use email. They use the phone. Um, so there's hundreds, thousands of businesses out there that aren't even using any technology at this stage. So I think the, the future of SaaS is, has a very, very long way to go which I think is is easy to kind of forget if you are the three of us, like we know this industry, we see people in the space. We, it, in my mind, everybody uses SaaS. But I think if you speak to the average person on the street, they don't. So there's a huge amount of room for the industry SaaS as a whole to grow. E-commerce as an industry has a huge amount of room to grow. More and more people, particularly since COVID, are now buying online. But there's still lots of people who are not. And I think that the products out there and the just general resources for founders, much better than it was 10 years ago. If you want to launch a small software business, um, a lot more support and a, a lot more exit options. Like I said, back then you were launching a business. Most people were not even really thinking about selling. I think we wrote an article about how to value a SaaS business, I think five or six years ago. And that was like one of the first pieces of content on, on the topic uh, if you look at that same same topic now i think hundreds of other articles have been published and i wouldn't necessarily accuse them of copying us directly but there's definitely an element of taking inspiration from the original content um we wrote all those years ago it's all going more mainstream the industry is growing which i think is a good thing for everyone in the industry so I think, um, what, what are your thoughts on um, bootstrap SaaS entities or founders who are running their lean uh, companies and uh, VC-funded uh, SaaS companies? Because I'm assuming that there would be a lot of uh, companies who are in the bootstrapped uh, spectrum. They would be coming to you for, let's say, valuation or for uh, you know, getting their buyers, et cetera, and sitting on the negotiating table. Do VC-funded companies also engage with you who are like on the Series B, C range and beyond as well? Yeah, I mean, we work with a range. Particularly smaller businesses we work with tend to be not funded. If you have uh, a business you build up yourself, you're in it 100%, uh, just you, and you sell the business for, say, $5 million. I mean, depending on where you are in the world, that, that amount of money like varies how valuable it is. But anywhere in the world, $5 million is a lot of money, regardless of where you are. So that's the attractiveness of bootstrapping. You don't have to build something as big as if you're getting VC funding. We do work with companies who've got funding as well. I would say rarely Series C. More commonly, they've got some sort of seed funding. Um, we work with a lot of companies that went through Y Combinator. Lots of companies that might have gone through a Series A. So it's not uncommon for them to have built up, maybe not grown as, as much as they could to be continuously interesting to VCs. VCs want a, want a billion dollar business, whereas we have buyers who happily buy a business for a million dollars, 10 million, 100 million, which is a fantastic result for the founder and the early investors, but it's not necessarily 
the result that a, a big VC won. So we do work with those companies that have got that funding. They still have often great businesses, but they are not, not necessarily attractive for, for future funding. Yes, yeah, so we, we don't necessarily just target VC funded or just bootstrapped. We'll, we'll work with either. I think uh, my friend Saurav out here has worked with GS for a good amount of time and thereafter moving into e-commerce ecosystem in Southeast Asia as well. So um, Saurav, do you have any thoughts or any questions for uh, Thomas as well? Uh, thanks a lot, uh, Thomas, for sharing all of that. Uh, that was quite useful. Just a couple of questions uh, from my end. Um, is there a typical range as far as CAC or CPI is concerned for the SaaS-related companies across the globe? Yeah, with CAC, I mean, we see a real range of businesses. I'd say that the majority of businesses we work with in the SaaS space don't target enterprise clients where CAC goes much, much higher. A lot of them do not spend a huge amount on marketing. So often technically their CAC can be zero or they'll at least think it's zero because they're not spending anything on marketing. It's really just their time, particularly with small bootstrap businesses. If you look at the kind of businesses built around different marketplaces, so for example, a, a Shopify app, often they also have extremely low CAC because all of the discovery is through the, the Shopify app store. Um, and all, all the app stores have different terms. So it used to be that Shopify took 30% of your revenue, just like Apple would if you had a, a an iPhone app, but they, they recently changed that to just taking a payment processing fee of 2.9%. So often really low CAC on the app store. Again, with Shopify, they launched the ability to run paid ads recently. So I've definitely seen more apps recently that now have CAC or running some, some paid ads, but I'd say it really varies. Lots of bootstrap companies will say their CAC is zero. I'd say it's one thing that bootstrap founders don't do a very good job of is spending money on marketing. So CAC being zero, yes, technically that's great, but can you scale that to a business that makes 10 million a year without spending anything on marketing or advertising or sales team or anything like that? Probably not. Got it. And I understand that uh, typically for FE exposure has been towards the early stage of the startups. Uh, would you be able to share some color around uh, the valuation to uh, their MRR or recurring revenue? So as you say, is there a typical ratio around that? Um, yes. In the, so we look at primarily seller discretionary earnings so it's a derivative of EBITDA or net profit it's effectively the profit of the business taking out anything that the owner pays themselves generally revenue multiples are not used for small bootstrap companies revenue multiples make more sense for fast growing businesses which are getting funding they're not selling outright because in that case you're, you're funding things like CAC like you mentioned so it's like well if we invest $10 million into this business and hundred percent that go, goes into advertising, what will that do to revenue? So that's why revenue multiples make sense there in just selling a business outright. Generally revenue multiples don't make any sense because if you're selling to a, a private equity firm, for example, they, they have to, they have investors, they have to return money to their investors. So it's a financial decision for them. M multiples really vary. I'd say anywhere from four to 10 times is common in the, the SaaS space. But like I said, at the start of the interview, we look at thousands of different variables from thousands of past deals we've closed. So way well on that scale will really vary. We look at growth rate, some of the metrics like CAC, like you mentioned, revenue churn or net revenue retention, whatever you want to call it, the industry the business is in, 
we'll look at hundreds and hundreds of different variables. So you could be anywhere within that range. It could also be higher. It could also be lower. Um, but generally, I'd say four to ten is a good a good range to think about, particularly as businesses start to get bigger as well. If you have a business making, let's say, ten million ARR, it's more likely to be worth the higher end of the scale. If you're making two hundred thousand ARR, there's still a buyer out there, but they're probably not going to be paying ten times for your business. Uh, that was definitely quite helpful. And like uh, you had mentioned, that uh, there are not many businesses or individuals like you and I who are exposed or they might be willing to use such SaaS-based solutions. So in that kind of a scenario with that background, do we also have a general understanding around retention rates, given that not many people are actually using marketing channels effectively? I think most. this is one thing that's definitely changed over the years. If you ask someone in 2012, any of their metrics, most people wouldn't know, or they would, most founders would know a couple of important metrics. These days, there's a lot of tools out there like, uh, like ProfitWell, Chartmogul, Bear Metrics. I mean, it doesn't really matter what tool you use, but most of those tools, particularly if you're using Stripe that we already spoke about, it's really easy to get those metrics in an accurate way. So I'd say 95% of SaaS founders we work with will use a tool like that to calculate their metrics. It's quite uncommon to see somebody who does not use any tool or does not track their metrics in any sort of way. We do very rarely see it with businesses which are very small SaaS businesses, which might be 20 years old, and they've been running a very consistent way for that entire time, and they've not really kept up with the kind of industry trends and products you can use. But that's definitely one thing that's big change in the last, say, five years. Founders are much, much better informed. I think there's, there's a lot of great content, like I said, podcasts like this. There's tons of places you can go to learn about. SaaS. So founders are definitely better informed than they used to be, where there was five years ago, they were nowhere near the same resources you have today. And uh, slightly touching upon the emerging market, I understand that uh, your recent deals were more so concentrated towards the developed part of the world, say the US. I understand that uh, the SMB uh, ecosystem over there in the US or in China is slightly different than the Southeast Asia region. Uh, because of the low internet penetration, et cetera. What would be your views around uh, such SaaS adoption in that geography? Yeah, so, I mean, just to clarify, like, first, yeah, I guess our name is Effie International. So as the name suggests, we are very international. I'm also English. I just happen to live, well, I move, moved to the US for um, Effie. But, I mean, we have a team in London. We have a team in New York. We have a team all over the world. We do a lot of business in Southeast Asia, work with almost every country we've we've worked with. So it's actually a lot of the deals we do, I think at least 50% of the deals we do are outside of the US. I think where the misconception comes in, a lot of acquirers are in the US. So the buyers generally in the US, not 100% of the time, but usually that's where a lot of the money coming into the industry is. Um, but founders are all over the place. And I guess one of the best things about SaaS or online businesses in general, and this is why I'm very bullish on the asset class over the next hundred years it's like you say the world is like i was saying out where i live very nice i'm a privileged to live in a, a nice part of the world 100 percent of people here have internet but the local companies like i said are not necessarily using SaaS products yet in parts of the developed world you're even further behind because like you say people aren't even, don't even have access to the internet they can't buy products online they don't have access to things like in the us i take it for granted that we have amazon prime I can order anything on Amazon and it will be 
at my door within a day. But that's not a thing in a lot of the developed world. So there's a huge room for that, the industry to grow there. But I'd say if you are a, if you're a founder in Southeast Asia, you don't have to just target clients in Southeast Asia. The, a lot of the value in the business is kind of targeting clients in the US or the Western world who have generally more purchasing power. So we see a lot of businesses where they might have, for example, a team in India and they're playing, paying less than US salaries that are targeting US-based customers. So their margins are fantastic. So that they're still paying good salaries in India, but in the US, they would not be competitive salaries, but customers in the US don't care. Well, customers anyway, generally don't care where the business is based. As long as you're getting a, a good service or a good product, people are happy to pay. So I think that's one of the big opportunities is building out a team in a lower cost of living country um, versus the US and selling it to countries like the US. Um, and then ultimately selling to a US-based buyer as well. So I think that's a lot of the opportunity. And also, like you say, if you target in more of a local market, if you're based in India and there's relatively low internet penetration, then that's, that's only going to increase in time. A lot of the developing countries have had huge improvements in their infrastructure in the last 10 years. So like we're talking about FE was founded in 2010. If you think about the big investment banks, everyone knows about like JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, who we are effectively are competing with on a lot of these deals. When they were founded, I think JP Morgan was founded in the 1800s, but the internet didn't even exist. So in 50 years time, what's it going to be like? I don't know. I think it's reasonable to assume that more people in the world will have internet than they do now. Got it. Do you see any common themes uh, uh, evolving across the globe? Uh, let me contextualize that. Like in Southeast Asia, you will find quite a few solutions for bookkeeping, such as in Indonesia, we have Buku Warang, Buku Kasa, etc. And similar solutions are there in India. And I also see a lot of people moving on to uh, marketing related SaaS solutions, which helps them target the right kind of audience in an uh, economic way. On the similar lines, you see such common themes which are yet to be uh, explored and uh, scaled up in Southeast Asia. So I think in general, and this is probably more of a, a general comment rather than Southeast Asia specifically, one of the great things about bootstrapping and not raising venture capital, you don't need to build a billion dollar business. So we see SaaS businesses that do, say they do something for a very specific audience. So I don't know, bookkeeping for companies with less than 10 employees in India, or apply that same thing to almost anything. So you can build, there's almost an unlimited number of businesses you can build that target a very small industry. Maybe the target market, you can only, only get to a million dollars ARR. But like I said earlier, if you, if you bootstrap that business and you sell it for $5 million, that's a lot of money. You don't necessarily have to go after a, a big market. I mean, we've built a big business just doing M&A for a very specific group of businesses that the average person on the street has never even heard of. So whether in Southeast Asia or anywhere, you can build a very niche specific service to a very small audience and still build a, a very nice business. So I don't have any insights into kind of specific areas in the world and like what kind of things you can build, but there's no reason why you can't build a, a product or a service around a very localized target audience and then sell it. The only thing I would say is generally speaking, and this is a generalization, 
US buyers generally want to buy businesses which have US based clients. So if you're building, for example, software company in India and 100% of your clients in India, then that will probably limit your buyer pool versus a business which has 10% of clients in India, 20% in Europe, 20% in Australia, 50% in the US. That's probably going to have more acquirers interested. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad business. Uh, just from an acquisition perspective, it's usually a little bit harder. Sure. So I think uh, SaaS is in general a global play. And uh, some of the trends that we have been uh, finding in the SaaS uh, ecosystem is that a lot of companies are going for vertical SaaS. So the, those are very specific companies which are building solution for a particular use case, like some of the people that you rightly mentioned as well, right? Do, those who do not have exposure to the SaaS tier, if you go deep into a particular vertical, then there will be a lot of SMBs who are really targeting these particular user cohorts and building SaaS solutions for them. And that's the next big trend as well. Apart from vertical specific SaaS, there's a lot of uh, micro SaaS companies that are really popping up in different parts of the world. And uh, these are getting traded as well. Two member, three member, five member lean teams building amazing specific use cases. And those are being really having good MRR and ARs as well. Micro acquire Andrew Gazinski, he's also, you know, uh, building a particular platform where a lot of uh, similar trades are happening. So my question to you is that in these kind of ecosystems where you are seeing, uh, let's say, you know, bootstrapped SaaS companies, and uh, you also see VC funded companies, what do you think are happening in um, uh, the deal uh, tables? For example, you have expertise in negotiation and deal making as well. So just wanted to know a few of your thoughts or some of your best advices for some of the early stage startups as to what route they should follow and how do they get onto the best deals going forward as well? I'm definitely not an expert when it comes to raising funding, but I think the yeah. one thing that is definitely clear, like I said, particularly over the last five years, is that you don't necessarily need funding to be successful, um, or you don't necessarily need a lot of funding. I think you have to be in a somewhat privileged position to be able to at least launch a business. So for example, when I started FE International, I was not married, I did not own a house, I had effectively no kind of overheads in my my life other than paying rent for a small apartment. So much easier for me to start a business then than it, it would be today when I have, I'm married, I have a house, I have a mortgage, have lots of other financial obligations. But in terms of funding, you don't need a huge amount of funding other than your time to get a business started. Um, there's so many free tools out there. You can get kind of free sure. access to so many products like AWS, for example, will give most companies free credits. I think companies like Stripe will give you free credits when you start. Like it's super cheap to start. Obviously, it depends where you're based in the world, what your life is like in terms of overhead. So say you don't need funding. My approach, if it were me and I was building a business again, I think I would start it myself with my own money, my own time, and then try get some traction before you raise funding. I think where founders really lose money in their negotiations, if they're raising funding, is they'll just have an idea or a concept haven't even built a product, have got zero customers, and then they try raise funding. I think in that situation, unless you have a track record of building a successful business, you're just not going to get good terms. Whereas if you can build a business to a relatively profitable level and have some revenue coming in, you have many more financing options. So you, you, you know things like, like we spoke of earlier, you know things like CAC. It's not just a, a number you've made up in a slide deck. It's a real number. You can say, okay, well, we have, a thousand customers. We think our LTV, according to ProfitWell, is 
thousand dollars and our cat from the google adwords we've run so far is a hundred dollars that that's much easier for people to invest in so while i'm not an expert at raising money if i were to be raising money myself or advising someone i think getting some traction yourself knowing the numbers makes it a much easier decision for investing or for an investor and you can get better terms or you can also decide not to get any funny tool keep 100 percent of your business and then when you come to sell the business you don't necessarily need the same financial outcome because you still own 100 percent of the business whereas if you've sold 80 percent to investors and you only own 20 percent, your business has to be five times the size just to make literally the same money makes sense so uh Last question is that, uh, Thomas, do you have any favorite books that you would recommend to some of our listeners or any favorite podcasts uh, that comes to your mind or something that you have been reading off late as well? Yeah, it's a book I read years ago. It's called Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. That book, like looking back today, so the concept of tipping point is really that in a lot of industries, a lot of businesses, and in like all of life, you'll be working towards something continuously without often without really seeing results for a long time and then suddenly mm-hmm. something happens which is the tipping point which then like completely changes things so for example if you're in the SaaS world you could say that like a tipping point was when stripe was launched because previously it was really difficult to really difficult to process payments wasn't very developer friendly if you're in the e-commerce business maybe the industry tipping point was shopify i think for us at fe there hasn't really been one specific tipping point, but there's been lots of small events which have compounded the industry. And now there's, like I said, more and more podcasts, more and more marketplaces out there where you can buy and sell businesses. There's courses, there's conferences. There's lots of different information you can get about buying and selling, which for us is good because it just builds the, the size of the overall industry. Do we have 100% of the industry like we did 10 years ago? No. But a bigger industry is is good for everybody. Like I said, I can only see the future trends growing. <laughs> so I guess that's the concept of the tipping point, really. It's that you get to a certain level, then things start to improve, and then it will just compound from there, which is what's happened to us and what happens in a lot of other businesses as well. Absolutely. I think a lot of um, the SaaS companies will be having their tipping points in the coming years, primarily because the entire ecosystem is growing in leaps and bounds. And uh, for all our listeners, I would like to thank you for it. And uh, it's like, any bootstrap founder can come onto your website, feinternational.com and can seek a free valuation of his or her company. Is that, is that right? Absolutely. I would encourage everyone to reach out. We generally value businesses for people who might not sell for years. So we sure, sold sure. a business recently and we first spoke to the founder, I think in 2014, where he got a free valuation and then he's gone away and worked on the things that we said to work on. And now the business is worth significantly more and successfully sold so yeah any listeners feel free to reach out we're happy to put together a valuation for you based on like i said all of our data and other companies we've sold that are similar absolutely i think this service would be really valuable to a lot of SaaS founders especially in their early years not a lot of people would like to sell it off but they would definitely want want to know a valuation around their company itself so yeah, thank you so much for your time, uh, Thomas. And uh, thank you so much for spending your uh, morning hour with us as well. And I hope to keep in touch. And if any of our listeners or our community members who would like to get a valuation report, they will definitely reach out to feinternational.com as well. Sure, thank you very much.
sok sirap. <laughs>